Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Uh, I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, we got, we, uh, we're on this new schedule, apparently, of every other week <laughs> of BP Movie Journals. Um, that's not what we aim to do, but uh, that's where we are, and that's what it's going to be after this, too. No, no Movie Journal next week, but back in two weeks. But what that means is we have uh, more stuff to get to this week than usual. So let's just uh, jump right in. Um, I watched a a terrific new movie um, that you can rent on Amazon Instant Video. That's what I did. Uh, It's called Into the Forest, and it stars uh, Ellen Page and Evan Rachel Wood. Excuse me. Um, And it also... um, And now I'm forgetting his name, uh, who plays their father, but he was... um, Kevin uh, Dunn. Nope. Um, he was on Battlestar Galactica. So, uh, it's not important. You know what? I'm sticking with Kevin Dunn. Callum Rennie. That's mm-hmm. his name. Callum Rennie. Um, and uh, have you heard of this movie? Yes, I have. Um, so, the, the director's name is Patricia Rosema, uh, or Rosema. I'm not sure. Uh, it is a, I, it's not really a science fiction movie, but it, but it does take place in the near future. Um, where Ellen Page, here's the one part, <laughs> this is more suspension of disbelief than is needed for any of the science fiction things. Uh, Ellen Page plays a high schooler, um, on, like 10 years after Juno. Um, she still reads young. She's, she's a Hollywood high schooler. But I guess, like, no, I'm I guess okay with that. if I had never seen, if she was new on the scene right. and she was playing a high schooler, I probably wouldn't blink an eye at it. Yeah. It's just that I've seen... 10 years of Ellen Page playing, you know, she was like a cop last year in Freeheld or whatever. Like, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. um, uh, it's, it's just weird to me, uh, for someone who has been around that long yeah. to go back to playing uh, a high schooler. As if to say, like, you're yelling at the screen, like, you know, you're not fooling anyone. <laughs> Something like that. No, I didn't mean this to be about like, uh, uh, yeah, I, I realize now saying it makes it sound like I'm saying she looks old or something. She knows she's it's just she's a public still, consciousness. We know that exactly, she's not that age. Yeah, that's exactly well. that's, that's all I meant by that. Um, but, uh, so Ellen page is the high schooler. Evan Rachel Wood is her slightly older sister. Uh, they live with their father. Um, their mother is deceased. They live with their father, uh, in a house that he has built or is in the process of building, um, in the, in the woods outside of a town. We don't ever find out, uh, quite, where but um the implication is that this is uh, maybe northern california or oregon mm-hmm. um anyway uh shortly into the movie the power goes out i don't mean the power goes out in their house or in their neighborhood but uh in the united states the power goes out oh okay um and it stays that way uh and this becomes essentially a survival movie um about two sisters. I um, did not know that's what the movie was about. Yeah, uh, and this, I mean, it's a bit of a spoiler that I just said, um, that at the beginning, it's two sisters and a father. Mm-hmm. Most of the movie, it's just the two sisters. Oh. Um, but it's, uh, uh, it's, it's an, an incredible, it's, it's what I love. And I've talked about this before, the idea of using genre filmmaking mm-hmm. to illustrate something that is uh, immediate and relatable and human, yeah. you know? And so this isn't, like I said, it's kind of science fiction because we don't, it's in the near future. We don't really know what's, what's going on. If this is, you know, a uh, terrorist attack or if this is some sort of, we don't know what is, right. we, we never learn because there's once the power's out and they're in the woods, there's no 
information coming to them, you know, so they don't know anything. Um, it's really, so it has kind of a high concept, but it's really just a movie about sisterhood yeah. and growing up. It's uh, like, um, never let me go, which I never saw, which, but that's the thing. It's for all intents and purposes. It's like a, a hard sci-fi movie, but you don't really see any indication of yeah. the future. It's more just the things that we all assume uh, the th- the thing that all the characters just know, but it's primarily an emotional connection film. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what that's what this is, and we um, get to uh, we get to see some of the it, it, this movie just hits so many of my my buttons because it is a, like I said a genre film that's actually um, the where the genre is actually kind of just a, a delivery mechanism, yeah. um, and it also one of the things I love to talk about uh, is about how cinema being an art form that exists fourth dimensionally um, is really well suited to the depiction of process. Mm -hmm. And so now they're without electricity and and what they have are books that they can read and figure out how to do stuff, figure out uh, how to, you know, what berries are okay to eat, how to cook them. And so we get to see the process of them um, surviving. uh, And that's just fantastic. That's catnip for me uh, when it comes to movies. That's quickly become one of my favorite things as I've become an adult, I have no idea why. <laughs> um, just because I've said before, I like when when people are good at something, like when they're good at their job. Um, oh yeah. yeah. Whereas I, but now I've always liked that. But now the idea of watching somebody having to tackle something—I mean, right. it's one of the becoming big things, more capable. Yeah, Castaway was like it right. pushed all those yeah. buttons. Yeah. You know, um, I do like the idea that this film could actually, in many ways, it could just be part of like the Terminator extended universe. It very well, you know, very well like could Skynet be. Skynet yeah. has hit, but they don't know. Yeah, it very well could be. Um, yeah. And, and so you get to see the process. You also get to see them like, um, wh- what parts of their former routine they try to hold on to. And for how long they try to hold on to them is very yeah. interesting, interesting to watch. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's just a fantastically well-observed human story about, uh, about sisters or about siblings, I guess. Um, and I think there are some things that are about the story. I don't want to go into them, but they're yeah. very specifically, um, about, uh, sisterhood as opposed to just siblinghood in general. Uh, but I would definitely recommend this. It's a, um, I, I don't know if it's still playing in theaters anywhere. It played briefly in theaters, but, um, it is available to rent on Amazon, which is, okay. uh, quickly becoming one of my favorite ways to watch movies, which I feel bad about. I know I'm supposed to be, if we had Scott here, I'm sure he'd, uh, scold me for not valuing 35 millimeter or whatever. But, uh, you know what? I can pause it if I need to go to the bathroom and there's no one talking or snoring or, uh, crunching loudly or or anything like it is. uh, I do enjoy getting to watch cans on their forehead (laughs) and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. I was having that exact conversation with uh, our stupid friend Dan uh, oh, yesterday. Yeah, I know it's the worst. Um, in which he basically was saying what you were, which is just like, and just, you know, Dan has a youthful energy to him. And I saw him age like 30 years. <laughs> he's like, ah, I don't know. He's like, I just, <laughs> I just like watching stuff at home, just laying on my couch. Yeah. But not, I mean, not paying these prices and going out and, you know, that sort of thing. But also, I mean, to, to make it not just about, me um vod is a way that um low to mid budget yeah. cinema for movies can thrive now because if 
movies are just dependent on theatrical grosses, then all that we're going to get are, you know, more of what we get from the major studios, Yeah, you know, and, um, movies like, uh, into the forest might be almost impossible, uh, to, to have exist. Um, and so I'm all for VOD in, in that way. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it plays into the episode we'll be doing this week that yeah. the budgets are lower, the stakes are lower and a, a studio or a producer or whatever is more, is, is a bit more likely to let the filmmaker just tell the story they're going to tell as opposed mm-hmm. to, no, you don't understand. We need to play well everywhere. And you, we have a production, we have a, a, an advertising budget that is like twice your budget. And so we need right. to justify that. You know, it's, it's, I don't know. Give somebody a lot of freedom. Um, okay. So, uh, first film on my list is the film nerve. Oh, yeah, which we didn't see at Comic-Con. Right. They did a screening, but it was during our meetup, and obviously our meetup trumps Nerve. Yes. Barely. <laughs> because Nerve is great. Oh, really? I, I really, really enjoy Maybe not great. I, I, it's really enjoyable. It's incredibly well done. Um, it's Emma Roberts, right? Yes. I like her. I uh, feel like it's not cool to like her. But I've I like only her. seen her in this in Scream 4. Um, oh, right. Okay. What else has she been Well, in? she's... um. Uh, uh, been on a number of the American Horror Story uh, oh, okay. anthologies, yeah, which is most of mostly what I know her from. Oh, and The Art of Getting By, but don't see that movie. Oh, right, yes, that sounded uh, that looked terrible. Oh, it was terrible. Um, she was also in Aquamarine, which I never saw. Hey, <laughs> but do you remember that movie? I do. Of course, I would. I would never think of it unless someone had said it. And then it's like, and now I pick, you know, I, I, fl- I immediately flash back to me working at Blockbuster and just having a shocking number of copies of Aquamarine yeah. uh, for some reason. Man, I um, would like, we, we should do an episode or just fuck around episode about hypertension about movies from the early to mid two thousands that no one remembers, but we know because we worked at a video store. Oh yeah, absolutely. Beyond borders. Sure. Harrison's flowers. Suspect zero. <laughs> I don't even, I don't remember suspect zero. Yeah. And uh, it, Harrison's flowers. That's a good one. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> you know, taking uh, lives. Ta- right? That was that great minds. I was about to go, yeah. uh, taking lives, which if I actually you say think suspect is, zero. It's only yeah. a matter of time before you arrive at taking lives. Taking lives wasn't bad by the way. Um, the other movies yeah. I mentioned, I either didn't see or were bad, but, um, I kind of like taking lives. Uh, I think there's one called stick it. Is that it? Oh, yeah. I don't remember what it's about because I never saw it. I think it's like either. a gymnast movie with Jeff Bridges, pre-Oscar Jeff Bridges, okay. uh, as like the, the grizzled yeah. old coach. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so, Nerve. Sorority Boys. Cool. <laughs> was that early, to, was that during our, our video store tenure? For some reason, I think of Sorority Boys as like late 90s, but I no, might no, be I, wrong. No, I, we already lived in Chicago when that came okay. out, so it was probably 03, maybe? Okay, 02, 03? Yeah. Uh, okay, so... Yeah, Nerve, it's got Dave Franco, who is, uh, a very, I think, a very charismatic actor. Um, I think he's very much stepping out of his brother's shadow and being, a, yeah. I don't know, he's a, he's a very different screen presence than James Franco. Um, and, you know, it's, in many ways, it, it's been compared to David Fincher's The Game, but the but it's very much, you know, for a younger generation and one that is more tech savvy and it's incredibly well edited at this point in the movies that I see, I find myself really paying attention to the use of color. Um, Hmm. I like when a film has a nice color palette and nerve definitely does. Um, 
and and it's it is edited together really well like it's just the nature of it is just propulsive and they they tell the story well there are supporting characters that um that you think that there come moments when it's like oh i think this person is gonna die like i know the leads probably won't Uh but this person everything about them (laughs) says they're going to die and they do little things where you know they we see our main characters uh, succeed in the various tasks they need to do. And it's like, oh, this is fun. And then you see a montage of people failing. And then at the end of that, you see a character that we have seen before Mm -hmm. and have gotten to know in a very small way. You see him lay down under a train that's coming and it comes at the end of the failure montage. And so just that is done now. Spoilers, he winds up making it because he's a, he's a, he, after that he becomes a major character, but it's just, it's the filmmakers understanding how film and editing works right. that, I don't know, that this comes at the exact moment when the stakes need to be raised and you realize this is a very dangerous game. It's not the most dangerous game, um, but it sort of becomes that at the end. And so there's, there's a lot of, I was, I was definitely involved i was invested in the characters um and i i don't know it was just really i enjoyed it tremendously and i will also say that david we're getting older because we are now to the point where winona Ryder and juliette lewis are playing like mothers yep Yep. of teenagers by the way of like young kids and teenagers and uh oh boy yeah, it is. Yeah, it's odd. I still think of Juliette Lewis as, you know, Nick Nolte's daughter, uh, vaguely attracted to Robert De Niro in Cape Fear. Yeah, and I still think of uh, Warren Ryder as the biggest uh, celebrity crush I ever had <laughs> yeah. in yeah. <laughs> when I was in high school. Um, all right. Uh, now, I, I, I did a little d- uh, double feature. Um, uh, Amazon uh, semi-sci-fi movie double feature with into the forest. And then immediately after I watched the lesser half of the double feature, unfortunately I'd been excited about this movie directed, directed by Mark Elijah Rosenberg and it's called approaching the unknown. Okay. Um, I haven't even heard of this one. So, uh, Mark strong, whom I like, mm-hmm. uh, plays an astronaut on a solo mission to Mars. Mm-hmm. What? Oh boy. Why are you left? Because of a stupid joke that our friend, the friend of the show, Jason Eakin, and various others said enough time, including Kyle Anderson, I believe, a joke they said enough times that if you say the words Mark Strong to me, oh, okay. I will laugh because it is so stupid. This is the, one of the stupidest things that I've ever heard in my life. Okay. Here's well, now you have to tell I got to say yeah. it, Where basically they hypothesized a world where Mark Strong's nickname is Strong as a Pig. <laughs> Right. And then at stupid. one point, and then, then there comes a moment when he, his voice is in uh, like an adaptation of animal farm. Uh-huh. And so he becomes known as Mark strong as a pig, strong as a pig. That was it. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And they have infected me to the point where I enjoy Mark strong. I think he's a great actor. And now if I meet, if I see him in life, yeah. If he goes, hello, I'm Mark Strong, I'll just burst out laughing in his face and he'll be like, what's so funny? 
and I'll be like, well, I'll tell you, Mark Strong is a pig. Oh no. And just, uh, and I will ruin any, any, uh, goodwill I have with, uh, Mark Strong. I'm going to say, damn you, Jason Eakin. Yeah. I'm going to say that wasn't worth the listener's time. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. But, um, but so, the next time Jason is on, we can get mad at him. Okay. And there the we listeners go. can as well. So Mark Strong as an astronaut, Ooh. uh, is on a solo mission to Mars, um, and basically, that's it. The movie's 90 minutes. It takes place almost entirely, except for some flashbacks, um, almost entirely on board the ship while he's on the way to Mars. Um, I'm not going to tell you whether or not he gets to Mars, um, but things go wrong on the course of his journey. Um, the movie is, I think, very engaging intellectually, or maybe I should say, on paper, in theory, it's engaging. Okay. In execution, it the movie just lays there. I think hmm. Mark Elijah Rosenberg just directed everything. He directed the air out of everything, and hmm. it's the. It seems like the uh, Mark Strong, both in his voice because he, n- he narrates and his character, he never modulates his voice, and he's so like very low key and straightforward. No matter what, no matter what's going on, when yeah. things are going terrible, when he's like. Um, in danger of losing his water supply and dehydrating, you know, to death before he even gets to Mars. Like nothing seems to raise his blood pressure at all. And, uh, that kind of, I think translates to the viewer, um, in the way, and it makes the movie kind of boring. It doesn't help that, um, uh, Luke Wilson as the, uh, mission control, um, uh, guy is phoning it in uh i mean i've gone back and forth I mean, luke wilson has been good in things there are, there are performances of his that i uh, of his that i like i liked uh vacancy um sure. but uh um there's also a lot of times when i feel like he's just a big lump of no charisma uh and that's what's going on here he is not he does not have a great amount of range as an actor you you should not cast him as the head of mission control. <laughs> you know, you cast him in idiocracy and he's amazed and he's right, great. Right. You know, it's just, um, and there's nothing against him. There's nothing wrong with being a limited actor provided you get the right roles. And it doesn't sound like this is it. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, uh, Sana Lathan, who's an actress that I, um, uh, have enjoyed in a lot of things. Um, but she's, given really nothing uh, uh nothing to do um she's i mostly know her from love and basketball and brown sugar um mm. but she's in uh, a lot of movies um but she's uh, a very small role in fact i would say the best performance uh in approaching the unknown is a very brief one and do you know who they act i know you do but do you know the name charles baker he is known to most people as skinny pete Oh, from yeah. Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. And he's a terrific he's, actor. He's, he's been in also in, uh, and, I think he's also in To the Wonder. To the Wonder, yeah. And he's proven himself to be a terrific actor, but it's fortunately and unfortunately for the guy, he was so good as Skinny Pete on Breaking Bad that a part of me is like, when he plays another astronaut in this movie, it's like, how'd they let that meth head become an astronaut? <laughs> Even though he's not playing Skinny Pete, he's like, just like, he's so good. It's like, oh, Skinny Pete's really uh, got his act together. Um, but he played, at one point, Mark Strong hooks up with another like a space station to like refuel and resupply. Mm-hmm. And so it's Charles Baker and another guy. And basically their scientific mission has failed. And now they're just there as a supply chain, which means mm-hmm. they have months at a time with nothing to do. 
uh, and that's the most interesting part of the movie. And Charles Baker um, plays it the best. Um, I wish I could, yeah, I wish I could say nice things about the movie, but it's not really worth your time. All right. So next for me is I wanted to look up the uh, director and make sure that I had his credits correct, but uh, there aren't many of them. It's uh, Daniel Ragasis. I don't know okay. if that's how you say it. The film's called Imperium. Oh, this is the um, Harry Potter is a neo-Nazi movie? That's the one. Okay. And the film is, at times, great. Other times, insufferable. Um, and it is, the script is, again, at times, clunky as hell i mean it is the first the first uh i i i went to a screening and uh kyle anderson was there and so he and i talked afterwards and we both thought like in the first 15 minutes of a nearly two-hour movie i was just like this is going this is work this is going to be work today um and because it's all stuff like the the choices that are made as far as how Daniel Radcliffe's character looks. And it's like, okay, yeah, I got it. He's a misfit. Look at his hair and glasses. I got it. Um, and then when you see Tony Collette and that she's just like chewing Nicorette gum and just like chewing in a really obvious way, it's like, okay, I got it. She's like a certain type of FBI agent who's not really by the book and just... And just the and then when she's trying to recru- recruit him for this mission, you know, she's going through his file, reading stuff to him that he already knows. But oh, but we don't know it. And it's just come on, people. But <laughs> but once he is embedded in this white supremacist group, mm-hmm. uh, or rather this white supremacist community, because it turns out that there are a number of groups, and that there's a lot of infighting, and there's you know there are the white supremacists that see see this as a function of like spirituality and then there are some and it's fascinating that it's like yeah you know they 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 look at the bible and they see all kinds of stuff in there and they're like we like to think we're a little bit more rational you know and they uh-huh. and it's just fascinating and then there are some that it's where it's all talk and some that it's purely action um and that in itself is interesting uh there are some that are you know skinheads and then some people that just live very average suburban lives. And so he's just navigating through and getting to know these people. And I think where the film steps right is when you realize that some of these people, you yourself develop a certain fondness for they, just because they believe these horrendous things, genuinely horrendous things. Mm -hmm. Um, and the way it comes out, I mean, it's, this is not a situation where, well, these people believe a different political thing than I do. Like, what they think is monstrous. Right. And it has been responsible for some very monstrous things. Um, but, you know, Daniel Radcliffe's character doesn't really have any friends in life. And he's been pretending. Now, he's not in danger of being indoctrinated or anything like this. But there comes a moment in his real life uh, where he just feels frustrated and alone and he needs to go talk to somebody about it, and he doesn't really have anybody, so he goes to one of these guys, mm-hmm. and they just sit that he made a, a personal connection with, and they just sit and talk, and it's a real conversation. And in that moment, you forget about this mission, and so moments like that are where yeah. the film is great. That sounds great. Um, and I would say that this is a, this film is a prime example, one of the most like 
one of the big, biggest examples of this that I can think of from the last 10 years or so of like acting, escalating the material. Daniel Radcliffe does a really great job. You know, his, his, the nature of his character is that it's a little one note, you know, it's just intensity all the time. Mm. Um, but playing the, playing the white supremacists, you've got a lot of, uh, a lot of actors who I unfortunately wasn't super familiar with these, you know, character actors that have been bouncing around for forever. And then special commendation for Tracy Letts. Oh, who plays that a guy sort is of having a hell of a year. Yeah. Wiener dog indignation. Yeah. And now this, and it's so fascinating that this is a guy who's like an actor, but I think won a Tony for writing August Oge, uh, Osage County. Yeah. And then you and I saw him in uh, many years ago, and a number of listeners as well, in uh, Seinfeld, where he's the guy who runs like the track, like the betting track, who like uh, Elaine has to deal with in order to get, I think, like a, a, a card so that she can get a free sub or something like that. <laughs> Right. Oh, that's right. She's been giving guys like a fake number. Yes. And the number happens to be to this track and it's, and there's Tracy Letts behind the counter just being sleazy as hell and being like, seems like you like a lot of men. What about me? I'm a man. And just like, <laughs> you know, it's marvelous. And then the guy behind him is like just the creepiest guy. He's like, what about Charlie? He's a man. And then Charlie goes, I'm a man. <laughs> and it's delightful. And so, uh, but Tracy Letts plays a like a white supremacist Rush Limbaugh, basically. But like low, you know, it's he's basically only in one area. He doesn't have national uh, uh, coverage or whatever. Um, boy, he's good. Like he knows exactly how to play this guy who everybody else they need to be secretive. But he has a persona, and he plays up that persona, and it's a really the acting all around is just really marvelous. And there are certain filmmaking choices, specifically the use of music and just keeping you perpetually on edge. There are times that it feels like a horror movie. Um, so it's definitely worth seeing, but again, sometimes that script is just so, so on the nose as to be almost painful. Um, and then I actually do have some, it, it, it caused some, uh, some political thoughts in me that I'm not comfortable sharing at the moment. Um, <laughs> okay. just because, uh, uh, I don't like to uh, be conspiratorial. Oh, interesting. So um, I, can I, share, I can share with you uh, off air. Uh, is it going to piss me off? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, look, I come here to talk movies. Sure. Um, anyway, uh, speaking of movies, uh, I saw a, um, a really terrific and powerful documentary. Um, comes out in, in September. It's called Southwest of Salem, the story of the San Antonio Four. Um, directed by Deborah Eskenazi. Uh, and it's the easiest comparison. And I think it's a, a, a worthy one is that it's very much like the first paradise lost film about the West Memphis right. three. Um, in that it's not a documentary about here's some, you know, here's a, here's a group of people who were, uh, you know, wrongly prosecuted and, and freed, even though it kind of is that, but technically the San Antonio four, they are free on appeal right now, but they are not cleared. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what happened was in, in, in the mid nineties in San Antonio, Texas, um, four women who were all, uh, lesbians, um, two of them were a couple, but they're all just friends. 
um, were babysitting the nieces of one of them. And um, sometime after that night, um, they all got arrested for um, uh, essentially raping these two young girls. Um, And the movie, uh, and they spent um, like something like 16, 17 years in prison for this before being released on appeal because the movie um, and then we put puts together the case that this is preposterous and this was, and makes the argument, the reason it's called Southwest of Salem and makes the argument, this is a witch hunt. This is right. people who, um, uh, had assumptions and fears about these women because they were lesbians in the company of children. And that, um, set off. Where did the uh, charges alarms. originate? Like, uh, the, the girls, the girls something? came forward. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't want to, I mean, it's all real, but I don't want to spoil the movie. We, um, okay. Yeah, this is the uh, first I've heard of it. it sounds yeah, interesting. We, we, we do get some um, incomplete because not everyone involved will talk, right. but we do eventually get uh, a loose picture of how um, how this came about, how these girls, and when I say girls, we're talking like uh, eight to ten, like maybe 12 at the oldest, but okay. like they were... Um, so this is they were coerced, manipulated in many ways. So um, this is in many ways very Salem. Like I, I think of the Crucible, right? As yeah, like yeah. younger girls making accusations. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's an incredibly powerful and moving. I mean, I cried a ton of times sure. watching this um, uh, movie. And uh, yeah, it comes out in in September. Uh, definitely recommend checking it out. I got to go to a screening where because, like I said, they're they're out on appeal right now. Um, a, a, a Texas um, appellate court. Um, they have no timeline. Uh, it could be in a month. It could be in five years. But we'll decide on the case, and we'll either um, set them free, or say they. Uh, and this seems like the most likely at this point. Um, say they have to do another trial, uh, or and this is the least likely, but still possible. This appellate court could say. Nope, they were right the first time, and they have right. to all have to go back and finish out their their sentences. But um, the women were there, which they had to, their lawyer had to apparently because yeah. they're not allowed to go seventy five miles outside of San Antonio without um, permission. So the yeah. lawyer had to uh, work a you know um, do a lot of whatever lawyering uh, to be able to get them to come uh, to to the screening uh, here in Los Angeles. So. Um, that was very powerful to, to see them. But, uh, yeah. yeah, this is, it's a, it's a really strong and, and powerful movie. And it, uh, I think the comparison to paradise lost is, uh, a, a worthwhile one because it will stir the same amount of, um, righteous indignation. I think that, that one does, you know, it fills me with incredulity in a lot of ways. I recognize that like people, when they get together can and do ter- you know, terrible things often because they're in a group. But and I, I feel bad like making light of this, but it seems so strange to me that what it, what this ultimately comes down to is that people believed that like these four lesbians were watching kids, and the woman's like, "Hey guys, now hear it's, me out." Yeah, like it's this how is does one that of the even points, come about? Well, part of it is that this is, uh, and again, this is another connection to the West Memphis Three. Yeah. There were, uh, um implicate people were implying that there was some sort of ritualistic thing that they were involved in some sort of satanist ritualistic thing but one of the biggest points made by someone who is uh i i, I think actually a, 
a Canadian um, professor or it's Canadian like guy who is who studies sex sex crimes essentially yeah. says that um, sexual like assault and molestation of a child by women is very rare. Mm-hmm. When it does happen, it's usually a woman who is mentally ill or is, I guess, in conjunction with a with a male partner. Mm-hmm. But the idea of four adult women who have no history of mental illness all yeah. getting together and deciding to um, molest two girls is essentially completely unheard of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Like, I'm sure there are exceptions, but at the same time, like, <laughs> come on, guys. Um, <laughs> Let's, I recognize that that's not a legal defense. Yeah. <laughs> of, come on, guys. But uh, when when did when was this? You said mid nineties, early nineties. Ninety. Well, it was. I think. I'm trying to remember. Um, I guess it was because there was a long time between when it happened and when they finally went to prison. Because I think they didn't actually go to prison. Well, one of them, the the the, the aunt, went to prison first. Because and then the other three were um, tried separately. And so they didn't start their sentences until 2000, but I think it was like 96 when the event took place, I think, okay. uh, or didn't take place, but was alleged to have take pla- taken place. Uh, yeah. Southwest of Salem. That's what it's called. Okay. Uh, so I rewatched, because it was a companion film for more than one lesson this week, I rewatched Mystic River, uh, a film I haven't seen in a very long time, a uh, film that in my own mind... Uh, started to degrade over time. Um, you know, you, th- you think of that moment of, you know, is that my daughter in there? And uh-huh. you think of that. Um, Emmy Rossum. That's correct. Yes. From Phantom of the Opera. And Shameless, I think is probably what she's most known for now. I'm not following you. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, and for myself, one of the things that I remember of the film is Laura Linney's uh, monologue of sorts at the end where she's basically Lady Macbeth and that's the note we end on apparently it seems like such a wrong wrong choice and I remember uh, I haven't seen the movie in long enough it's been too long for me to have this argument again but I remember arguing that with you because I did not dislike that oh it's a great scene she's great in it you you make it 10 minutes earlier I'm on board but her character comes to the forefront two minutes before the movie is over uh-huh. it's I don't know it seems it's not Deus Ex Machina because it's not necessarily a plot thing. It's just, hey, I'm here too. I'm Laura Linney. Um, and again, it's a it's well written and well acted. It's just timed wrong, I think. Um, but anyway, so these are the things that I was remembering. And in watching it, um, there are things that still bother me. And then there are some things I'm like, oh yeah, this is pretty good. Uh, the acting especially, you know. I might have my issues um, with Sean Penn, but he. There are some small some scenes where he's actually very small, very subtle, and does a great, great job. Um, the thing that sticks out to me is that um, oh, Tom Stern—that's his name, the DP. Um, mm-hmm. It's a that's a Mystic River is a beautiful movie. It I really think, is, you know, but not not in an overtly beautiful way. In a way that like yeah, um, yeah, it always seems like you. It's one of those movies you always have the feeling like is the projector bright enough? Like, yeah. I feel like there's a, like, it's a li- it's dim in a way, but not in like a Gordon Willis, like intentionally right. like high contrast way, but in a way with the, uh, everything seems like a little overcast, uh, but it's beautiful. There is. Okay. Tell me if I am overreaching. There is a, I had in watching it this time, I had the thought about the visual quality to it. 
that the nature of okay, you said overcast. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's go with that. Visually, and I mean this in a good way, it's like everything is stagnant. Like, no, I don't know. It's just there's no vibrance to this community. You know, characters live on the same street they grew up on. Nothing yeah. changes. Um, and everyone knows everybody. You know, people are using a gun that was used in a crime 30 years ago. Like, it just, no one leaves. Nobody new shows up. Mm-hmm. Relationships might change, but not really. And and visually, it just sort of seems like, I don't know, It's it, it's not overly contrasty it's not overly stylistic but it's also not just bland it's just yeah. sort of feels like something's been sucked out of it yeah it's kind like of. uh not that this movie actually looks like this but it's like uh, the langoliers that's exactly <laughs> what i was thinking great minds david that's yeah. exactly what i was thinking wow. i was going to say it uh first but taking thought, lives and now the langoliers yeah, then i thought then i thought you might make fun of me uh <laughs> but no that is spot on that's exactly right um, you know, except that, I mean, off, you know, that it also, that looks kind of pedestrian, but you know, the, the color has been removed yeah. and you said overcast, like the clouds are there, but there's no wind pushing them. Right. And so, uh, yeah, the visual quality of mystic river really sticks out to me. The performances, I, I, I always liked Kevin Bacon's performance, even though they have that dumb little contri- contrivance where it's like his, his ex-wife calls but like doesn't say anything and just happens over and over and then there at the end she finally does say something like yeah all right fine um that seems like something very much out of a pulp novel yeah uh but uh or not a pulp novel but an airport novel and um but it's it's still out of like uh out of the letterbox five stars it's like a three and a half star movie it's not an amazing film but it's better than i remember um so i i'm glad i watched it speaking of pulp okay I saw a movie that, from what I understand, uh, is divisive. Some people uh, uh, incorrectly dislike this movie. No, I, I'm joking. I actually, watching it, I could completely see someone not being on this movie's wavelength and hating it. I loved it. Even though it's a mess at many points, uh, it uh, it comes out soon-ish. Um, oh, I guess late September. Uh, it's an Australian film directed by Jocelyn Morehouse. It's called The Dressmaker. Oh, okay. Uh, it stars um, Kate Winslet um, and Liam uh, Hemsworth, Hugo Weaving, uh, and the great, great Judy Davis. Mm. Um, and That's some, a good cast. Yeah, some of the people here and there. But it's it's insane. They it's um, the premise. Like, okay, here's something to say. All right. I normally um, to I, I don't like to watch trailers before I see a movie, but I'll often watch a trailer uh, after I see a movie. And I generally don't encourage people to watch trailers. I would say, go ahead and watch the trailer for the dressmaker because it is so far from the movie that it is. It's fascinating to me. It's almost like a, a, like a exhibit a in how a trailer can misrepresent a movie because the the B of course being youth. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I actually never watched that trailer. Mm. Um, but the dressmaker is a, is a trailer where like the story that they're saying the movie is is the story of the movie, but it so misrepresents the tone of the movie. Yeah. So the premise is Kate Winslet um, plays a woman who uh, was as a girl 
essentially sent away from the town, the small Australian uh, town she lived in. Now it's, I think the movie takes, I can't remember if it says what year, I think it's about 1950. Uh, actually, yeah, it is. Uh, Sunset Boulevard came out in 1950. Is that right? Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, because they go see Sunset Boulevard in, in the theater. So I'm going to say it's 1950. Um, but, uh, you know, 25 years previous, she'd been essentially sent away um, because she was, uh, well, I don't want to go into it. She was accused, but it was not proven that she had done something horrible as a little girl. Uh, and um, she was sent away from this town and from her mother, uh, Judy Davis. Um, and now, 25 years later, she's come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and she comes back and she starts shaking things up because while she's been away, she's traveled Europe and uh, become um, a seamstress and become a dressmaker and become very fashion forward. And so she works her way back into the community by making beautiful dresses for the women who live in the community Mm -hmm. and uh everything just gets stirred up by her presence it's essentially in many ways it's like that movie chocolate right yeah um but this is chocolate if directed by quentin tarantino uh during his django unchained hateful eight period because it's a it's a western 100 percent a western they built a small town uh, entirely, okay. um, and uh, I think the director described it sort of tongue-in-cheekly. I read uh, as um, uh, Unforgiven with a sewing machine, which is funny, but I don't think Unforgiven is the right movie because Unforgiven is a little bit too down-to-earth. Okay. This is more of like Django Unchained with a sewing machine. Okay. Uh, it's a very, very heightened movie. Um, it It is a little bit messy in terms of like it doesn't feel like the – the, the 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 pacing is a little bit off like there's for a movie that is essentially like i described it as compared it to chalk a lot there's a surprisingly high body count but there is one major character who dies and it's um he's such a major character that it kind of grinds the movie to a halt and it, mm-hmm. then it feels weird that there's still like half an hour of the movie left yeah uh and but eventually it gets it, it picks it up again but there is a period after there's uh after one character death where it's like, are we we're still going? There's still stuff, but yeah. then, uh, it, 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 picks up. Um, I don't know what else to say about this movie, uh, except that I, I loved it. I could totally see someone hating it. Um, but I mean the, the, the opening sequence, let me just tell you the opening sequence okay. of the movie. It's dark in this small town, this small Western town. Uh, um, and, a a, a car pulls up, um, Kate Winslet dressed to the nines gets out, with her bags of, uh, you know, high end stuff. The car drives off. She sets down. She's on the, the, the main street of this tiny town. It's the middle of the night. She sets her bags down, lights a cigarette and says, I'm back. You bastards. <laughs> and then the opening titles start. Uh, and yeah, if that doesn't do it for you, you're not going to like the movie, but, uh, it's, it's pretty great. Let me ask you this. Um, now, I have not seen this film. It's unfortunate because I got a screening invite for more than one lesson. I wish I had gone. Um, but uh, also, Was the screening invite at the Broad Green Pictures screening room? Have you been there yet? I have not. Oh, man. It's a new fave for me. All right. I gotta, I'll, it's like, I'll keep like couches and stuff. Mm, yeah. I like that. Uh, so I haven't seen, obviously, I haven't seen this movie, and I haven't seen this other movie I'm going to talk about, which is uh, Labor Day. Is Kate Winslet... <laughs> entering into a phase where she just wants to like have fun with like pulpy stories and stuff. I guess, but this is more, I mean like Labor Day. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that movie. I still can't figure it out. If, if it's, 
if it's weird tone is intentional or not. Um, cause I don't think I like labor day, but I am fascinated by it. Yeah. Whereas dressmaker is very intentional. I mean like, yeah, she definitely took this movie to have fun because okay. you couldn't, I can't imagine being in this movie and not having a fucking blast. You get to hang out in a completely created, uh, set and wear unbelievably beautiful, uh, and striking gowns. Like if I were Kate Winslet, I'd want to make this movie all year round. Anytime I return to a place, I'm now going to say, I'm back, you bastards. (laughs) Um, Okay. So, uh, let's see. What's next for me? Next is, in fact, yes, Suicide Squad. So, uh, which will play heavily into this week's episode. Um, So, I won't go into a lot of detail about it. But, um, yeah, the movie is an absolute mess. Um, you can see the seeds of what is good in there. I don't mean to imply that David Ayer's original film was going to be a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but it at least would have been more coherent. This is disjointed. It doesn't seem to know what it is or what it wants to be. I do think that the central story is an odd one to tell right now. Um, and it's an odd story to I don't know to uh, to put at the center of a Suicide Squad movie because you know so much of it they're fighting against a supernatural force. So let's get Harley Quinn with a baseball bat. What like stuff like that doesn't make a great deal of sense to me. Um, Can we? What What do you got? What? Superhero movies? Because I okay. I keep getting my hopes up, and I haven't seen the movie. Maybe I'll love it. Um, but I had my hopes up a little bit. So this. did I, but I'll tell you as soon as, uh, cause I think the, um, I ran into a uh, friend of the show, Aaron Newworth. Um, I think the night after he had seen the mm-hmm. uh, a screening of it. Um, and he was telling me about the plot and I immediately became disheartened because I expected given the nature of who these characters are and what I thought the premise was that this was going to be, in a good way, a lower stakes superhero yeah, movie. It should have but been. But they still have to save the fucking world at the end. Can we have like this? I'm telling you, <laughs> this is why I like superhero comics and not superhero movies yeah. because superhero comics don't have to justify a budget every week. And not every story has to be about an existential threat to the entire world. And yeah. it doesn't have to have huge uh, effects. And like this, I wanted this to be, I, I didn't want it to have to be about fighting some big world destroying MacGuffin. And I feel like that's one of the things that, you know, I definitely think that the studio, when they saw the success of Deadpool and recognized, well, we have a whole, a movie full of potential Deadpools. Let's do, let's do some reshooting and some mm-hmm. re-editing and that sort of thing. Well, one of the, I think one of the many things, although I don't know if anybody's actually said this, I think one of the many things that people responded to about Deadpool is if it's a revenge story. That's it. It's small. Yeah. You know, there's not no, to the character. I mean, I, no, I didn't see it's it. It's huge to the character. Of and course. that's what's important. And that's, I, I feel like people know that about movies. Studio execs, especially superhero producing ones, don't seem to get that that's what's important. Yeah. That the stakes need to be big for the character. It doesn't have to be save the world every time. Yeah. 
It's especially when we're getting one of these a month superhero movies. Like, yeah, it's getting, very I'm getting, tiresome. I'm getting really upset about a movie. I didn't see, but well, I'm just, I'm so bummed because I wanted this to be the one. I will focus on things. the things that are good for a moment. Um, as I hoped and assumed Viola Davis is awesome as it's, I I'm a, I'm aware of that character mm-hmm. and I'm reminded of, um, Ocean's Eleven for a few reasons. One is that I was watching the commentary, you know, forever ago, and it's it, the commentary was with Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, and Andy Garcia. And I remember Brad Pitt and Matt Damon made a comment that they said they were very complimentary of Andy Garcia, and they said, "This is a guy who is, while he has thugs and stuff, it is his persona versus eleven separate distinct characters, and he needs to be seen as." the threat. He mm-hmm. needs to be seen as able to overcome all of these people. So he needs to have a very specific screen presence. Viola Davis, she just works for the government. She's just in a pantsuit mm-hmm. the whole time. And she has to be essentially against and intimidating to these various, uh, villains who are, you know, very distinct and all this. And we need to believe that, her personality at the very least is the match of all of them. And of course she does it. And she's my favorite part of the film. Will Smith also does a great job. Um, I, it would be nice. I think, I think he would benefit from taking more ensemble roles. Um, I think Margot Robbie, such as where the day takes you. Which one is that? <laughs> the one we talked about before. Let's just forget it. Oh, right. You don't yes, remember. Yes. The I don't. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, Margot Robbie does fine. Um, she does a very good job, uh, with a character that is, for me is becoming increasingly, uh, boring. Jared Leto and this conception of the Joker is to me fascinating because of who the Joker is in pop culture. There's always going to be a bigness to the character, whether it be the fact that Noted Oscar-winning actor Jack Nicholson is playing the Joker. Or you have Heath Ledger, who's not that level, but there's a philosophical quality to that Joker. You know, Mm -hmm. he wants to teach people a lesson. This Joker is small. He's thuggish. He has a lot of money. I don't believe he's crazy. I don't believe he has a point. I think he is a full-on hedonist. This is the first Joker, and this is going to sound like a weird thing to say. This is the first Joker I believe could actually and would actually rape somebody because there's nothing that's stopping him. And he, the character makes me in a way that I like makes me uncomfortable and it would have been interesting. And so the Batman that has been set up in this, in this universe and this Joker being set up in this universe, the idea of, of, putting the two of them in a movie together, provided they don't overstuff it and shove all this other shit into it. And they keep it to these two. That is, that to me is very interesting because this is definitely a Joker that is not coming up with labyrinthine plots. Like in the dark Knight. this is a Joker that is just going to come into a place and shoot everyone. And that's where, that's where it ends for him. And so it's an interest. And some of that is Jared Leto's performance. Some of that is just the way he's conceived visually and what they give him to do. So I, I don't think it's an, I don't think it's amazing, but it's intriguing. So the film is not completely irredeemable. And the fact that David Ayer did finish 
and I believe finish an entire cut of the film. I'm interested to see if that will become available on Blu-ray. And once it is, you know, and I'll be repeating a lot, a lot of this in the actual uh, episode, but yeah. I'll be interested to see if that happens. And I'm curious to see what the film's going to be. Um, all right. I, uh, I watched a, a Criterion Blu-ray that I have yet to review because I'm not sure what to say about it. I liked it, um, but I didn't love it. Uh, it's called, it's from 1963. It's called Muriel or The Time of Return. And it's directed by Elaine Resnay. I don't know how you say his name, but this is the guy who made last year at Marion Bad and uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour, um, which are both uh, incredible, towering monuments in cinema <laughs> to me. And I feel like maybe it's a bit unfair that I'm comparing his movie against um, what I think are two of the greatest movies of all time. Uh, but this is, uh, but that comparison, it 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 doesn't. And, and like I said, maybe it isn't fair because it doesn't uh, do it any favors to compare it. Uh, in, in case in point, if I were comparing Muriel to a conventional film of the early to mid 1960s, I would say, oh, this is clearly an art film in the way that it uh, um, jumps around in time. And, 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 you know, it's clearly it's very unconventional. But compared to last year, Mary Bad and Hiroshima Moore, it's an incredibly straightforward movie. Yeah. Um, and so that makes it feel... Um, I guess it makes it feel less ambitious, which isn't fair because it isn't. Uh, but it also, it, the, the premise is that, uh, a woman, um, her, uh, and I can't remember, it's her, her, her stepson is, she lives in a small town in France and, and sells antiques. Uh, her stepson, um, has recently come back from fighting the war in Al- in Algeria. Um, and, uh, also an ex lover of hers has come back, um, also from, uh, Algeria, I guess, but he was, uh, running a shop of some sort there. I've already forgotten what kind of shop. Um, and so, uh, the stepson is dealing with processing some things that he did. They're working on, they're talking about what the relationship is versus what it is, was versus what it is now. She's selling antiques. It's very much like a lot of Elaine Resnay's movies. It's very much a movie about memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think it's uh, well made. And I think the performances are good. I definitely mean, there's a, a, uh, a, I guess you'd call it a dinner party, a dinner party scene near the end that is uh, staggering. It's so good, but I do feel like, and you know, maybe if I if I rewatch it, I'll have more of a reaction to it. Um, but I do feel like it unfortunately suffered in comparison to his other work, yeah. but it's still a great movie. So I don't, uh, I'm still trying to figure out what to say about it. You'll know uh, when you read my review of the Blu-ray on the website, uh, where I, where I came down on it. I like the idea that in your review, you incorporate a lot of ums and, yeah. uh, and a lot of ellipses where you just, the sentence trails off. Um, okay. So next for me is Anthony Mann's the man from Laramie, uh, which, I acquired on DVD a while ago and thought, yeah, I'll throw this in. Uh, Starring Jimmy Stewart, among others. And it is a very, very... I don't think I've seen any Anthony Mann films before. Uh, That might not be true, but I don't think I've seen any of his Jimmy Stewart westerns. Um, Yeah, I've seen um, uh, Man of the West, but that's Gary Cooper, right? Oh, I don't know. Um, I know that Jimmy Stewart's in The Naked Spur, and I think... 
Oh, I don't know. I don't have it in front of me. But anyway, The Man from Laramie is a very interesting film because I feel like it's a lot more interested in setting and character than story. Uh, The characters, there's no central thing that happens that sets the characters on their paths. Some people are trying, everybody is working at cross purposes. There's not much of a sense of urgency um, to what they're doing. It's more just, oh, I'm doing this thing. And then this guy over here pissed me off. So I guess I got to deal with that. But then most characters try to resolve things peacefully. Hmm. And then it's just, just human error and, and bad luck that causes things to go bad. Um, you know, I mean, we've seen, we've seen the, the, the rancher who owns, basically owns the town and like a, a 40 mile radius. Yeah. We've seen this character. Jeremy before. Irons and Appaloosa. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. That doesn't work. Anyway. Um, Underrated movie, Appaloosa. It's, it is very good. And I, I think one of the reasons I like it is because it's directed so in such a straightforward manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Gambon in open range. Like this is, and those are just recent films, you know, Recent-ish. Recent-ish, yeah. Sorry. Well, they're more recent than The Man from Laramie. I'll say that. Uh, So we've seen this character before, but what's... And, you know, he's a... And he has a a son who's just a total wild card. And the son is is an absolute asshole who's angry at Jimmy Stewart for being on his land. And so he burns Jimmy Stewart's wagons and shoots his donkeys. Like, really terrible things. And then... So Jimmy Stewart confronts this this guy's father who runs everything and the father's like all right i'll just he goes you know i'm sorry about that uh, i'll write you a check you know i'll i'll give you some money to that covers all of the expenses he's not an asshole at all he's trying you know he he overpays for for the donkeys and the wagons and he's just trying to run his business mm-hmm. and and trying to make allowances for his son who's an idiot and and is a has a hair trigger and all that um, and then Jimmy Stewart himself is trying to get to the bottom of, of this massacre that killed his brother, I think a full year before, but he allows himself to get distracted by the various people that he meets. It is really interesting how in many ways lackadaisical the film is, but then there are other elements where there, there's a character that Jimmy who is a ranch hand that is like a son to this rancher, um, and he gets in a fist fight with Jimmy Stewart, but both of them are very reasonable guys. And then later on, when they meet up, uh, the ranch hands like he goes, "I don't know if I won or lost," and, <laughs> and Jimmy Stewart's like, oh, "I just call it a tie." And so then they're like friends again, and this ranch hand turns into the villain, but he's not a villain. It's more just a series of, of unfortunate events. He's maybe the most sympathetic character in the film. But things just go bad for him because he's trying to juggle a lot of mm-hmm. things and he winds up and Jimmy Stewart winds up being angry at him, even though, again, he there was no malice in his actions at all. It is a fascinating film that sounds and great. one probably one of the best Westerns I've ever seen just because of what they're trying to accomplish. And it's so different. Um, this one won't take long. I saw a movie. I know you were interested in this movie and I'm, uh, sorry to let you down cause it mm-hmm. didn't turn out to be that good. Uh, it's a new German movie called the people versus Fritz Bauer. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's the true story of a, um, uh, I guess a district attorney. I'm not sure what the German equivalent is, uh, but it's, um, in the years after, uh, um, world war two. Uh, and he is very, and he is very actively trying to track down and prosecute, um, members of the SS and mm-hmm. members of the Nazi party and high ranking people who, who, um, oversaw it and, uh, helped carry out um the the holocaust uh but he is um not out loud but he is encountering a lot of resistance because um there's a lot of people who are still high-ranking members of the german government at that point who would rather he not look too closely into that part of the past Um, because they have something to hide or they just want to move past it as a country uh i think it's a little bit of both i think more 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 the first um uh, I think uh, if you want a movie about the the latter thing, you should see uh, Phoenix from last year, even though I didn't think it was as good as uh, a lot of people did. I think it on our BP top 10 last year, I think it was an honorable mention, Phoenix. I think so, yeah. Uh, that's a movie that's, I think, much more about um, Germany as a nation just trying to move past and sort of turning a blind eye to things. Um, this is more about, like, uh, these people either were involved or the people who are on the run might have been friends. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and it's very, it becomes more specifically about the, uh, real life, um, tracking down and recapturing of Adolf Eichmann. Um, but I think it fails as a procedural, which it is, you know, a kind of a detective story of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's too inert, um, and, and has a lack of momentum to really succeed at that. And, and the other, the thing kind of like what I said about approaching the unknown, earlier it has an idea behind it that i find fascinating but it doesn't um seem curious enough about to more than uh glance on which is the idea of fritz bauer as a patriot but he is loyal to an idea of his country that is not what his country is and maybe wasn't ever what his country was yeah um, that's a fascinating idea to me, um, as someone who sometimes feels that way about my sure. country. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and it also, uh, a huge part of the story is that Fritz Bauer is, is gay. And, um, that is something, uh, that could very much hurt him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I'm guessing that was, I haven't done the research. I'm guessing that was true about Fritz Bauer, but, um, even if it wasn't, it works very well metaphorically, uh, in, in terms of what I'm talking about, uh, about him having to, you know, be something he's not, um, and whatever. Uh, yeah. Uh, I understand why you, when you read about the movie, were interested in it. Yeah. And has a lot of interesting ideas. Uh, and it's not, bad it just seems like there's a lot of potential left on the table at the end of that movie mm, that's unfortunate i believe tnt in the 90s made a film called uh, the man who captured eichmann mm-hmm. um with i think arliss howard and playing eichmann robert duvall and oh, wow. uh, i saw it because of robert duvall and he is of course wonderful um one of the best actors of all time in my opinion just throwing that out oh, there oh jeez louise <laughs> Uh, does not get enough recognition in my view. Okay, moving on. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> what? Well, apparently, I mean, like now I have to advocate for someone for our list just to balance it's the fine. scales. It's How many votes have you gotten for Gong Li? Any votes for Gong Li yet? Yes. 
Oh, good. And you haven't even gotten my ballot yet. That's right. So there'll be at least two votes for Gong Li. For Gong Li. When the uh, whole thing is said and done. Now, that's now there'll a, be more because I said it. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, the list is shaping up very well. I'm... I'm excited. I'm excited by uh, by this. And I'm excited to see what our writers write about these uh, various actors and actresses. But uh, we'll move on from there. Okay. Uh, okay, so I saw the remake of Pete's Dragon. I saw that a couple days ago. And this is a, this is a tough movie to talk about hmm. because it is perfectly fine. It's good okay. in many ways. It is, first off, it's beautiful. It's shot very, very well. Um the pacing of it is refreshing because it's just very calm. There's a the real emotional, there's emotional complexity, but there's like a, a, a story simplicity to it um, that is that is nice. I mean, summer movie season is not usually the time for a movie like this in, in its tone and its oh, okay. pacing, and so it's you know it's nice in that regard. Um, the story is a very familiar one. It's not. Unlike E.T., it's like, uh, in my review, I said it's like a much more optimistic King Kong. <laughs> um, and, but I feel like it's, it's like what you said about that one film. There's a lot more potential that is unrealized than what is actually there. Um, specifically when it comes to character. With a film like this, where you have a... a a director who's willing to just let things breathe, you actually have a tremendous opportunity to explore characters and develop them. I'm not saying it needs to be a character piece, but, you know, so I grew up on the original Pete's Dragon, and this is so tonally different that it, thankfully, you don't really need to compare the two. Um, there's a, a kid named Pete and a dragon named Elliot. That's basically it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't need to compare the two, but what I will say is that that original film deeply flawed as it is, had a number of very inter- uh, very interesting, very distinct characters. And you knew who everybody was. You knew where they were coming from. Now, some of them were kind of cartoonish, but it was, you know, I, when I think back to that movie, I think of the, the memorable characters. There are no real memorable characters in this film. The kid who plays Pete does a great job. And the relationship he has with Elliot is as it should be the core of the film, but all the townspeople played by, you know, Bryce Dallas Howard and Wes Bentley and Robert Redford and Carl Urban and a number of others, they, the actors all do a fine job and they definitely lock into the tone, again, that quiet, simple tone of the film, but I don't know who these people are. And for the most part, I don't care, which is kind of a, a bummer because they really could have used this, uh, to, I don't know. It, I'm not saying make them the lead. Pete is the lead. Elliot is the lead. That's fine. But as supporting characters, you could have them look at Elliot and stuff is revealed about who they are as a result. That tends to be how these things go and usually for a reason. Um, so it's a fine film. I'd be fascinated to know what children think of it. Um, you know, I'm not super thrilled with it, but you could do a lot worse than this movie. Again, Having just talked about Suicide Squad, which is just a frenetic mess, uh-huh. uh, this was a nice, it's a, it really is a nice breath of fresh air. And you titled the review what now? Nice and simple. Do you have any regrets about not titling the review, Ain't Them Dragon Saints? <laughs> <sighs> I do now. I can go in and change it. No, that's not, that's, that's not true. Um, and you know what? Honestly, I'll say this. 
this movie makes me want to go back and watch that movie. Okay. Because I'm curious to know how this director would approach a crime story. Um, so yeah, it's uh, again, perfectly fine movie. You could do a lot worse. All right. Uh, I watched a movie that I know among horror fans is a classic. Okay. Um, I was very eager to see it and I understand why it has a following, but um, it's not, there's nothing of great substance there. Uh, 1985's The Return of the Living Dead. I don't know if you've ever seen this one. Uh, when I was young, yes. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, people will know it as the idea of zombies going brains. That comes from this movie. Yep. Uh, I also think maybe the first running zombies. This might have been the first movie with the running zombies. Um, I feel like that's something we think of as a more recent thing. But Well, I, when we get to my next film... I can confirm or deny that. Uh, oh, 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 okay, great. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, and it's a movie, it's, well, let me look at the runtime. It's an hour and 31 minutes. That's perfect. It's a perfectly fun time. Um, it's, uh, it's very exploitative in a way, in some ways that are fun in terms of uh, the gore. That's what you're there for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it's a, it's a dark comedy zombie movie, it's, it's okay that this is exciting gore. Yeah. Uh, and I will say the practical effects and the puppet work are terrific. There's some really awesome, uh, zombies like, um, you know, half man zombies and, mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of like just really cool, um, uh, puppets and effects. That's definitely the highlight. Do you happen for me. to know who did the effects? Uh, I don't, I, you know, okay. I probably did. And, I don't remember. Cause like um, at that time there were like three guys that <laughs> were amazing and practical effects. And it's usually one of those, one of those three, whenever you're talking about how great an effect is. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, it, uh, but it also has one poor actress who has to spend most of the movie naked. Um, and I found that, uh, exploitative in a, in a bad way. It mm-hmm. just seemed, uh, completely pointless to me. Um, and the other great thing it has going for it is, um, a number of the performances. Most importantly, do you know the character actor, James Karen? Yeah. He's been in a ton of stuff. Yeah, I great. think I mostly think of him from poltergeist, right? Isn't he? Yeah. Um, Craig Nelson's boss. Yes. Uh, in poltergeist, but he's been in a, he, a ton of stuff. Yes. And he's one of the, um, first two, guys who encounter um the zombies oh and this is also a movie where uh it's the rare zombie movie where the zombies are actually referred to as zombies Mm -hmm. because this is it takes place in a world where the movie the night of the living dead exists like nice so they taught like james karen talks about george romero's film the night of the living dead that's cool uh and then that's and then that's so they actually refer to the zombies as zombies it's a fun time i can't if it i mean i guess it doesn't um fail to follow through on anything that it promises. So I, I can't, um, find that much to argue with, uh, about it, but it is a mostly disposable movie and I don't see myself returning to this. I don't seeing this become a, becoming a Halloween classic yeah. for me, the way other, uh, scary movies what prompted whatever. you to watch it. Out of uh, curiosity. I got, I got the, um, shout factory oh, uh, nice. Blu-ray okay. to, 
to to review. So there, yeah, there will be a review going up, and by that time, I'll probably look up who did the effects. Uh, I w- uh, I would like to borrow that from you because I saw it when I was very very young. I and I certainly probably would not have been able to appreciate the references to Night of the Living Dead. Um, yeah. So okay, David, it's odd you mentioned zombies because my next two movies are documentaries about such things. Um, and why are you watching these? I'll tell you, David. Oh, good. I was hoping you would. <laughs> It'd be weird if I left it. Uh, so uh, our next round of commentaries are going to be about zombie movies. We'll be recording. And when it. you say commentaries, you're referring to our marathon commentaries. Our marathon commentaries. That's, that's right. part of the selling point. Is that not that we just do a bunch of commentaries is that we do them back to back to back and we become uh, ridiculously slap happy yeah. by the end. Listeners in the comments section, let us know if it is an actual asset. Uh, we think it is, but maybe not. But yes, what happens is David and I, we start at noon and we record about four, you four or five commentaries in a row. Uh, and then we are joined every 30 to 40 minutes by, uh, a, a guest, a previous friend of the yeah. show. Yeah. These are battleship retention favorites. Yes. And so this time, uh, past commentaries have been about uh, Lord of the Rings films, the Alien films, uh, various uh, slasher movies, and then the most recently the uh, Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher Batman films. But in September, we are going to, uh, just in time for Halloween, a little early actually, um, we'll be recording about the following films. The 1968 Night of the Living Dead, the 1978 Dawn of the Dead, the 1985 Day of the Dead, and the 2004 Dawn of the Dead remake. We are going to be recording about those four movies. Uh, They will be available. uh, Those commentaries will be available for purchase on, I believe, September 4th or 5th. We'll be recording on the 3rd. And so, uh, yeah, it's going to be, let's see. It'll be $3 per commentary or 10 for all four. So which is the say, way you want to go. Which is the way you want to go. Because it saves money and also, that's like we said, it's part of the experience. Yes. If you listen, you need to listen to them all in a row. Yeah. Uh, maybe even all in the same day. And, uh, yeah, do your own little marathon. Exactly. So much fun. Yeah. But, uh, Ending with the first and last good Zack Snyder movie. Right? That's about right. Yes, I think so. Unless, I mean... Not the last... Depending well, on... It depend, uh, depending on the day, I might add Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul sure. to the list. <laughs> but uh, well, it's pretty much just on the dead for me. As we've said before, or as I've said before, his movies are not good, but they're always interesting. There are movies that are good and not interesting, but he, that's not what he does. Like his, I find him infinitely fascinating, but his movies are incredibly dumb. But in preparation for these commentaries, I re- okay. I watched or rather rewatched because I've seen them before uh, a couple of uh, documentaries about zombie movies, starting with Doc of the Dead, which is more about the zombie phenomenon. Uh, so obviously, we talk about uh, George Romero and uh, various other things. Um, we talk about The Walking Dead. We talk about Twenty Eight Days Later. Uh, World War Z and, and that sort of thing. And it is very interesting. Uh, it's, it's fairly in-depth, which is a thing that I like. It, you have people debating, you know, what's better, running zombies or slow zombies. It talks about Return of the Living Dead being a key film because we now think that zombies want brains, and it came about from a comedy, yeah. uh, and we just all absorbed so it. Are, are they the first running zombies? Well. Okay. Officially, 
the very first living dead we see, which is in Night of the Living Dead, the guy in the mm-hmm. graveyard, he runs. Like, he moves really fast. Okay. Now, he doesn't necessarily... I'll say this. He doesn't necessarily run at full speed. But, I mean, he's definitely not, you know, shambling along. Okay. And so, uh, to the point where George Romero himself, when faced with stuff like that later, he said, he goes, I didn't know what I was making. He goes, uh-huh. he goes once, I, when it, once it came time to make Dawn of the Dead, I decided I need to make some rules for myself. He goes, but at the time, you know, we called them ghouls. We didn't know what caused them or anything like that. We were just making a horror movie. And... So, uh, but the one thing that people do definitely credit Return of the Dead, Return, Return of the, the Living Dead, Dead was, uh, was Brains. And then... And remind me, real, I'm sorry, okay. the documentary you're talking about is called what? Doc of the Dead. Doc of the Dead. And so, um, but yeah, and, and it's very interesting. They, they interview uh, Simon Pegg uh, and uh, Robert Kirkman. And, you know, they, they interview some, some heavy hitters in this genre and people that help frame the the subgenre uh they talk to max brooks which is unfortunate because he's insufferable <laughs> um do you know who max brooks is he wrote world war z yeah and phew, no thank you i think i saw him once uh at comic-con many years ago at a panel and uh man there's just something about the way he presents himself especially when he's in front of an audience that well, makes me want to murder obnoxious him. obnoxious scion of an icon named Max? Max Brooks or Max Landis? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you know Let's what? put that I'm one to the s- listeners. I'm going to say Brooks. All right. Listeners, when it comes which one to, are you more annoyed by? Because while Max Brooks has helped definitely shape modern zombie culture, because it's very much... Because I think he helped shape what what would we do in a zombie apocalypse? You know, what would you, you know, what would be your plan? What would be my plan? He helped right. shape that conversation. No question about it. But when it comes right down to it, Max Landis can, can actually uh, talk fairly intelligently about the artistic process and about movies that he likes. He has shown himself to be a good writer uh, at times. Okay. Uh, American Ultra is a movie that yeah, you enjoyed. I, I like Chronicle a great deal. So I would say... Uh, I would say uh, Max Land- uh, Max Landis comes out ahead. Max okay. Brooks definitely, uh, you know, that's the thing. I think Max Brooks at this point dines out on being Max Brooks. I okay. think Max Landis is still working. Uh, right, but to, I, well, to do I mean, uh, Max Landis is more uh, uh, all caps problematic sure. than Max Brooks. And I think sure. that, I think for I want to hear what the listeners say, but I think that's definitely going to carry a lot of weight with a lot of our listeners. Well, it's, and that's true, but it's a, it's that comes down to uh, Max Brooks only being only being interested in talking about himself <laughs> and zombies. So uh, you know when you're lo- when you're only ever looking inward, not like in an introspective way. Right. When you're just looking in a mirror, you're not going to talk much about anything else. But anyway, uh, but it's a, it's an interesting documentary. I I, I like how um, it's from the same guy that made the People versus George Lucas. So it's oh it's I saw fa- that it's fairly in depth. Yeah, I like that. Okay, <clears throat> um, next movie I saw. Um, this was the same day I saw Return of the Living Dead. Uh, I went to my wife and I went to Cine Family to see a screening of a movie that I've long wanted to see, but is not uh, available on any home video uh, format. 1974's Celine and Julie Go Boating, directed by Jacques Rivette. Um, and this, like I said, it couldn't be more different than Return of the Living Dead because this is a three hour and 15 minute absurdist comedy art film. Uh, and it's terrific. 
projection problems aside, mm. um, there were a couple of them. Uh, one reel snapped and they had to stop the movie. Uh, then they also made an announcement beforehand. They said, hey, we just realized today that one of the reels of the film got lost in transit. So at one point, we're going to have to stop the film and for 20 minutes show you the screener and then go back to the film. So that's wow. unfortunate because it suddenly goes from, you know, you're watching a 35 millimeter print to suddenly yeah. this crummy uh, yeah. screener being projected. Um, that was unfortunate, uh, but uh, not unfortunate enough to distract me from how much I loved this movie. It is about um, two people, Selena and Julie, who are good friends, and we may or may not see them meet for the first time uh, at the beginning of the movie, or maybe they've known each other for years. Mm-hmm. It's not... Uh, clear and it doesn't need to be um and uh they uh start they they hang out together they start visiting this house separately uh and each time they leave the house they find themselves having been drugged and uh have lost their memory but they realize that when they eat the candy that they got from the house they relive the memories they had in the house in which they were not themselves but were they no matter who's in the house, they both end up as the same character in this story that seems to be playing itself out in the house over and over again. So they're going to this house and then coming home to eat candy and relive. And it becomes they're So they're participants in it, but they're not, but they're obsessed with finding out how it goes. So it becomes basically, uh, Selena and Julie go boating is a largely anti-narrative movie about the power of narrative. Uh, and it's uh, also hilarious, like absurdly hilarious. Um, uh, uh, although, I mean, not everyone will. I mean, I guess it depends on your idea of comedy. Sounds but, great. Uh, it's, uh, I laughed uh, a ton during the movie. Um, Why has this movie not been snatched up for distribution? I, I don't know what the what the deal is. There are, if you go on Amazon, there are some like. Um, I guess it's never been on Blu-ray at all, but there are some out of print like region two DVDs right. that you can get for like 45, 50 bucks plus shipping. Um, but, uh, I, I'm not really sure because so much of Jacques Rivette's work is available on that. And I, yeah. I don't know. You'd have to ask. Maybe it's a rights issue. Maybe yeah. some, I mean, and I'm sure people like the regular cinephiles probably know all this, but yeah. I am someone who, as I have talked about multiple times in this podcast, I only really care about what happens between the beginning and end of the movie. So I don't yeah. care to research about all that, but I'm sure yeah. we could have, I'm sure we have friends who know, uh, why this movie is not available. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's terrific. Uh, and if you do get a chance to see Celine and Julie go boating, um, uh, definitely, uh, check it out. That sounds marvelous. Um, okay. So, uh, my last film is another documentary about zombies and it is birth of the living dead. This is a better film. Uh, than Doc of the dead. Maybe not an, maybe not necessarily a better film. It's, it is different. Like that one was more about like having fun examining pop culture. This is specifically about night of the living dead. That's it. Okay. And it is, you know, it's a making of, and as you know, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of like a nice, a nice retrospective. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of the things that I like about what Shout Factory does and what Scream Factory does. They often have like a featurette that's at least 45 minutes, sometimes oh. longer, uh, interviewing people, you know, critics and, and, and filmmakers 
looking back and telling stories. That reminds me, I do want to lend you that Return of the Living Dead Blu-ray because it's a two-disc Blu-ray. It is crammed with features. Yeah. I know they don't sponsor us, but like Shout Factory, in my mind, I think the only reason that people don't put them on par with Criterion is because of the movies they choose to distribute. Much more genre. Yeah. Yeah. Movies that could be seen as like trashier and stuff like that, which is often true, but at the same time, movies that still shape the culture mm-hmm. and the treatment they give them is like with the utmost ex- uh, respect. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing. I also happen to watch uh, special fe- special features on the Shout Factory Day of the Dead Blu-ray. Mm. Um, so I've been really inundating myself with zombies. Uh, but, um, but yeah, Birth of the Living Dead is... You know, you a lot of interview footage with George Romero, who is refre- has always been refreshingly candid about his career, about his choices, good and bad, about how studios have treated him, and uh, but then they also interview a number of critics, which is always nice. I like that they interview Elvis Mitchell and and uh, others whose names I can't forget. I can't remember, unfortunately. Can't forget. I can't. For- oh, I can't. Oh, I'll never forget him. Uh, and. It just talks about, you know, it appropriately moves from who George Romero was before he made the film and like what led him to make it and then the various uh, issues that came into play while making it. And it's also just tremendously fun. Some of these stories are great because uh, the character who plays, the the actor who plays Johnny, you know, they're coming to get you, Barbara, like the guy in the Mm -hmm. first scene. He was like a major force behind the scenes. He was a major, like, when everybody else left, when the film was done and it was time to, like, make deals and stuff, it was him and Romero. And when it came time to do the sound mix, there was a guy that was asking for too much money. And so I think his name's, like, Russell Steiner or something like that. It's not quite that. But he basically said, all right, I tell you what. I will play you in chess. And if I win, you give it to us for free. <laughs> and he won. <laughs> and that's it. That's how the, that's, or at least you give it to us at the price we're offering or whatever it was. But, uh, but yeah, that was how the sound mix for night of living dead happened. And, uh, and then they move on to talk about the, what the film represented, you know, obviously they talk about race relations. They talk about just an anger, uh, that this was such an angry film and then it would go on to, you know, go on to spawn the angry horror movies of the seventies, you know, the ones that are, there's no castles in these movies. Mm -hmm. It's all Texas chainsaw last house on the left. Like it's just, it's just brutal humanity. And that this kind of kicked that off. And then it goes on to talk about the various, the ways that it has impacted, uh, filmmaking culture and then just culture in general. And it's a, it's a, it, I like how in-depth it is and, uh, and it just gave me a, you know, a new appreciation for, um, Night of the Living Dead, a movie that I've loved for many, many years. And it's always nice to hear, uh, new things about it. All right. Then I'll, I'll wrap up the movie section here with another, another, uh, uh, Amazon video, uh, uh, double feature. This was an actual double feature that played at a rep house over the weekend. And I had other plans with my wife that, uh, I wanted to do more. Uh, but I real once I realized they were both on Amazon, I was like, ah, I'll just, you know, for, 
uh, probably cheap, less money than I would have spent. Yeah. I'll just watch these uh, at home. Uh, it's a, they're both films by uh, Maurice Piliot. Um, I'm probably saying that wrong, but they also have the both. They both have the same lead actor, which is why I'm referring to it as a Gerard Depardieu feature. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, the first one um, and the best of the two. They're both really good, but the first one um, is a 1980 film called Lulu, L O U L O U, not L U L U, which is probably how you were picturing it, mm-hmm. but it's L O U because uh, Gerard Depardieu plays a character named Louis, uh, who is referred to uh, affectionately as Lulu. Um, and Isabel Huppert uh, plays um, a woman who is basically drug de- Lulu is recently out of prison. He's kind of a go nowhere brute of a man, and Isabel Huppert is a more um, uh, middle class, upper middle class uh, woman um, who is um, very bored with her um, controlling, um, but kind of. Uh, I guess mentally weak, uh, long-term boyfriend. And she meets Lulu at a club one night. Um, they end up having a one night stand that turns into a relationship. And the, basically the movie is about the, I think the, it's about how strong sexual attraction is Mm -hmm. because these people, (laughs) these two people have nothing in common, but they end up having, I mean, the movie is, uh, I don't know if this is really a spoiler. The movie is open-ended about whether or not their relationship is going to last, Mm -hmm. but they have a serious relationship that is based pretty much entirely on how much they like to fuck each other. Um, And I think it, uh, it it captures that really well. I will say um, I would love to read a feminist critique of this movie because um, I do think it's very much a, uh, a male gaze type of movie mm-hmm. um, in terms of the way it presents uh, the bodies. I mean, there's plenty of naked Gerard Depardieu, but I think there's more lingering uh, when it comes to Isabel Huppert. I don't know if that's how you say her name, uh, but I like saying it Huppert, that way. that's what I say. Um, uh, but I mean, um, I, you know, I still don't entirely understand why Gerard Depardieu was considered the sex symbol at any point, but you see more of it here in 1980 than certainly the you know massive man that he has become in the 21st century Uh, just a big bear of a man (laughs) yeah um but there's no um there's no confusion about why isabel huper was considered Mm -hmm. sexy at the time and still is um a beautiful woman uh and so you under you do understand why these people are uh, attracted to one another and i think the the movie really gets that gets that feeling across i don't want to say too much more about it, I guess. So this is going to sound mean, but it's, it reminds me one uh, of a Dennis Miller joke I always like, where he he was commenting on <laughs> Gerard Depardieu, and he's like, he goes, and talking about how big he had gotten, and he's like, he goes, man, it's like if that guy is a sex symbol in France, that whole Jerry Lewis thing makes so much more sense. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Uh, and then the second Gerard Depardieu, uh, Maurice Piliot movie, um, that I watched is one that I would actually like to get your opinion on. Okay. Um, it's called under the son of Satan. Um, and, uh, son S O N or S U N S U N. Okay. Um, and it's a movie in which, in which Gerard Depardieu plays. It, it's a period piece. I think it doesn't say, I think probably the 1940s, uh, it's not clear. Um, but Gerard Depardieu is a small town country priest who is, um, having a crisis of faith as are all movie priests. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and he is sent by his, uh, I guess, Monsignor or whatever, the priest, the higher ranking priest at his parish to a smaller town. He's, uh, I don't remember what, it's not important, but there's some priestly duty he has to um, uh, do in a smaller town. And so he has to walk there and he's walking overnight to get there in the morning. And on his walk along the country road at night, he is uh, visited by Satan um, in the person of just a, man but uh, yeah but it becomes clear and then i think it becomes overt uh that this is satan and then when he gets to the town where he's going actually he doesn't anyway the next day he um meets a young woman who has um recently committed a murder and he is able to see everything about this woman in her past and her crime and how she feels about it um and so he has this gift and the he and the movie itself are intentionally unclear about whether or not this gift was given to him as a reward for resisting the temptations of Satan or whether this was bestowed on him by Satan himself mm-hmm. um, because things go well and go poorly in different ways yeah. uh, based on what has, what has changed about him. Um, yeah, it's definitely more of a um, measured and formalistic movie than uh, Lulu. Um, uh, it's all, it's also a little shorter, which is nice. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a movie where, um, there's a lot of long speeches that are, uh, uh, sort of, um, esoteric and phil- philosophical in nature. Um, there's n- not a whole lot of, uh, the, the, the plot is secondary, which is kind of something that is true of both of these Maurice Piliot films in which uh like in the in the first one in lulu uh this is i, I guess a minor spoiler but uh isabella bear's character becomes pregnant and um she we see her tell someone else before we see her tell um lulu mm-hmm. but then we find out oh he already knows and we've just jumped ahead in time and this is the kind of thing that maurice Pilat seems to like to do because there's a huge time jump actually it could be months it could be a year um in under the son of satan and it's a few scenes go by after the time jump before it becomes clear to us, like how much time has passed and what happened in the time in between. This seems to be something that he likes to do. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure exactly, exactly why, but, uh, these are both really terrific, uh, movies. Um, and I think it's, it's a good director star collaboration because I think Maurice Piliat, Piliat, I'm not sure. Um, understand something that I think you and I have talked about before, which is that it, um, it takes a very intelligent actor to play someone of lower intelligence. Well, yeah. and that's, and, and Gerard Depardieu does a, he, he Depardieu a great job <laughs> <laughs> in both movies playing. I mean, he's not like Forrest Gump in either of the movies, right. but he's just like, neither one of these characters is particularly uh, intelligent. Yeah. Um, and he really plays that very well. Okay. Uh, that's it for movies. Uh, you want to kick us off on TV? Sure. So, um, I finished up Bojack Horseman. Um, it was a good season. Boy, this show is depressing. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's funny. I laugh, but I mean, there's a, you know, it's weird. So many, so many TV shows will end with like, you know, a cliffhanger. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to see what happens next next season. Bojack Horseman ends with emotional cliffhangers, mm-hmm. which is, okay, everybody seems not merely angry at him, but 
completely drained to the point where they're done with him. Like, so what's the next season going to be? Because there is, there's definitely an element where everyone seems to have abandoned him. Like, is he, are there going to be new characters or what's going on? And, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very, very good. I'm, I'm frequently, uh, impressed by the voice work of everybody involved. Uh, Will Arnett, who, who gets a lot of voice work uh, in the last mm-hmm. you know 10 years, finds a lot of, you know, he can be funny and dramatic within a few seconds of, of each other. And so it's a good season uh, of a show that I, that I do enjoy. It's not great. And I think I said that like in the first half, they weren't really doing that much, but as tends to happen, uh, it really does develop into something dramatic and and very affecting. Uh, the only TV I want to talk about is uh, the end of season two of Unreal, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, a bummer overall. I think I've been okay. saying this uh, maybe more on on Hey Watch This, um, and I'll talk about. I actually won't go into this in very much detail because we're talking about this episode this week on Hey Watch This. But um, I think the show hasn't been what uh, what people praised it as being for longer than you realize. <laughs> like I think the movie, the, the show kind of went off the rails halfway through the first season and is, was coasting on its early acclaim and season two only kind of, uh, lifted the lid on that a little bit and shined uh, a light. But, um, that said, I do think the last couple of episodes were better than the people seem to be giving them credit for. Uh, but uh, yeah, you'll hear me talk more, uh, and, and more in depth about this on, Hey, watch this. Okay. Uh, you got some more, more TV to cover. Yeah. One is just, uh, every once in a while I will throw in, uh, or throw on cause it was on Netflix. Uh, the West wing, uh-huh. specifically Shibboleth. No. Oh, specifically. Um, I don't remember if it's season two or three. I think it's at the end of season two. Basically in, once the, uh, in Excelsior Steo. No, I clearly like the holiday episodes. I guess you do. I like the ones where the president's an asshole and is in trouble. Oh, Um, 17 people? Yeah. Uh, Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, that's a great episode. That one, and I think the one before. Basically, I I enjoy the Oliver Platt character. I like the way he's written. I love the way he's played. And I do like when, when characters that previously are seen as incredibly noble are revealed to be not merely human, but potentially scandalously human. Um, as when Bartlett gets, when he's being confronted by people about what he chose not to say, you know, he decide he gets very indignant and basically says, well, this was no business of yours. And I don't agree. Uh-huh. And I don't think anybody else does. It's just like, mm, you are the one in charge of the military. And as, and as uh, Oliver Platt says, he said, he goes, let me ask you this. Is it possible you could be having an attack right now and I don't know it? Mm-hmm. And just, and it, they really lay it out just how much, uh, just how big of a deal this is. And when you have like the one-two punch of like Oliver, Oliver Platt really, uh, really like in a very officious, uh, uh, official and, an efficient way laying out what this is going to look like over the next several episodes. And then you have the moral side of it with, uh, Toby, Toby. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so effective and it's really, 
it's really mar- wonderful acting by everybody involved. Al- Allison Janney does great. Uh, uh, Stocker Channing is marvelous. It's, it is, I think, my favorite section of that show because it is peak writing, it's peak character development, and peak acting. Yeah. And I just, and I love it so much. So I, I just throw in, threw in like that, like three or four episode arc and, uh, it's yeah. not a, not a full arc, but the, when it really kicks off. Yeah. Season two is the best season in that, uh, especially that, that second half of the season. Yeah. I don't think I can disagree. Yeah. Um, so, okay. And then, uh, lastly, so my, uh, wife and I decided to cancel Hulu plus cause we're looking to save money here and there. Okay. And, uh, so Knowing that I was not going to have access to community anymore, I decided to watch all of it in about a week and a half. <laughs> uh, you know, the nature of my job is that I can just have stuff on and yeah. it's fine. Um, so I went through the entire series, finishing it about three hours ago. And that's, so that's six seasons. Um, now, uh, seasons five and six are not full uh, seasons. I think they're 13 episodes each. But uh, the thing that really gets me about Community, I like some of the character development and I enjoy the absurdist humor and that kind of thing. But especially in those early seasons, I know it sounds weird, but they they do create a world. And it is the world of Greendale Community College, which is a heightened reality. And and I don't know, just uh, especially when you've seen it before, to go back to those first two seasons, there's a certain degree of like comfort uh, when you go there because you just see the way the way classes lay, are, are laid out. You get to see like the students coming together for this, uh, you know, concert in the park and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I know it's it's hard to explain, but as, as I think as I think you know, and I think as the listener knows, I'm a big fan of world building if it can like pull the audience in and as strange as it sounds, you know, it's not, it's not Deadwood or anything like this. It's, it's just a community college, but Dan Harmon does such a good job of setting a tone that everybody seems to understand that, uh, that it just sort of welcomes, welcomes you in. And there's just enough, uh, pathos in the characters to, to keep you invested. Do um, now I've only seen a few episodes, but I remember this being kind of a big thing. Do the the digs at Glee seem a little dated now? Because uh, I know there are yeah, multiple I, episodes where they made fun of Glee. Uh, there are a few, yes. And um, when it's just like one line mm-hmm. here or there, yes. But then there are some where it's just a, a, a where they're being like recruited for the Glee club. Yeah. And then they just do, and then that's what the episode is. And Glee Club at that point could be anything, and so it's right. But it's there's all the talk about like regionals and like that's yeah, making you, fun of Glee. I assume so, but you know what? That's there's still enough there that I'm that I'm. But you remind me that's actually one of the ones I saw, which has one of my favorite things ever in the Glee Club performance. And the dean, whatever his name is, is yeah. like, oh, Brit is in this. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the the uh, uh, Jim Rash as Dean Pelton is just like this everyone's great but he really is like the secret weapon here there comes a moment when uh uh Annie uh played by Allison Bree she's like a, a reporter on the school paper and so she discovers this thing that uh, that he did wrong and so she goes up and uh 
She's like, Dean Pelton, I, uh, I've discovered this story. Now, when I uh, describe you in the article, would you prefer idiot or incompetent? And he's like, well, I prefer incompetent, but honestly, I'd rather you know. And, just, and then she interrupts him. Like, she, he still feels the need to answer her question. Like, well, if you need to say one of them, it's, it's, it's a really, really good show and occasionally great. Uh, more than occasionally, it is regularly great. Okay.